Are we ready to start? Yes. Let's begin. Just as a couple of words of introduction, uh, and the question that, there's a couple of questions that we're going to address today, but what does man bring to the table in this study of the doctrines of salvation? It's interesting, I kind of slipped and I was talking to someone on Friday and <clears throat> I said the doctrine, what are, you, what are you teaching? The doctrine of soteriology. Now, if you were here last week, you know what that is. But these people who were seasoned believers, what? What is that soteriology? The doctrine of salvation. What does man bring to the table? What descriptive do you want to use? It may not make a great acrostic and but, you know, Tulip does, one thing, it's just memorable. I don't know. Maybe it's because uh, Calvin was from the Netherlands. I don't know what it is. But, and Calvin didn't originate this. We're going to talk about that. But somehow it's memorable, even though it is problematic at times. Um, total depravity, radical corruption, bondage to sin, moral inability, resurrecting grace. This is the book that we've recommended, Proof. This is, this, their chapter heading is called Resurrecting Grace Toward Those God Plans to Bring to Himself. That's kind of long, and it is the R in proof, but still, it's kind of hard to remember, I think. Although, I, I, actually, I can remember that one pretty well. Holy Defiled. Do you remember Whoopsie from last week? Holy Defiled. I want to start this morning... Um, by saying this, and this is in your notes, and I had some people actually mention to me, I have a problem with Calvin. I don't know if I, you know, or Calvinism, actually is what they said, was it? Let me start this morning by saying, don't throw Calvin under the bus without giving him a hearing. Everyone is due, <laughs> due process. Calvin didn't invent Calvinism. I said that or something very much like that uh, last week, but it bears repeating. Calvin did not invent Calvinism. He would turn over in his grave if the truths about salvation that he and the other reformers in the 16th century distilled from Scripture were described with his name with an ism after it. The label Calvinism has at times in the past, been harmed by those who held biblical truths in a proud way. At other times, what has happened is this, and it's a tactic that I'm well familiar with, a tactic often misused by lawyers, has been used in a theological argument to distort what was taught by Calvin, Luther, and the other reformers. This tactic twists the other side's position in a way to make it unattractive. And that's a lawyer's tactic. The first source of harm, the sin of religious pride, was addressed by the authors of the book that we've recommended, Proof. At, they wrote, at times Calvinists, the two of us included, have defended these five points about grace in ways that showed little grace toward fellow believers. And for that, it is time to repent Calvinism, for the sake of Calvinism, is not worth fighting for. But grace is always worth fighting for. 
And as an answer to those who have denigrated the vital points of grace that saves from beginning to end, Professor Spur- Pastor Spurgeon would be one as a Baptist who had this to say. I love to proclaim these strong old doctrines that are called by nickname Calvinism, but which are surely and verily the revealed truth of God as it is in Christ Jesus. By this truth, I make a pilgrimage into the past. And as I go, I see father after father, confessor after confessor, martyr after martyr, standing up to shake hands with me. He goes on, and I'll get to another point about Spurgeon in a minute, but he goes on in a very descriptive way in that sermon. Notice Spurgeon's use of the phrase, called by nickname. This was his way, I believe, of cautioning us against buying into someone else's use of a label to describe something they have, like a dishonest lawyer twisted in an attempt to prove a point. In other words, don't blame on Calvin what you may have heard about him. That could be a distorted view. In other words, see what scripture has to say for yourself. How many of you like to be labeled? Excuse me. Do you have label, like labels being applied to you? Now, maybe some of you, there are certain labels like <clears throat> Tiger fan that you, that's okay with you. <clears throat> I see somebody back there shaking their head. Uh, Keith has been teaching us for the past two weeks and will again today of the danger of maximizing our diversities and minimizing what unites us. Let me encourage you to bring that message into our study of Reformed theology. Our personal understanding of God needs to always be in the process of reforming, but always based solely on the standard of God's inerrant word. We must strive diligently to be people, thank you, to be people of the word first of all. As the reformers put it, people who are sola, sola fide, meaning solely faith alone, and people who are sola scriptura, solely scripture. <clears throat> that's, now, that's only an introduction to what I think we need to see this morning about mankind's only contribution to the study of salvation. Um, what is mankind? Somebody would fill in the blank. What is mankind's only contribution? That's an easy, short three-letter word that's pretty accurate. We bring our deadness, we bring our bondage, we bring our blindness, we bring our inability to taste what is truly good, our hostility to God, hatred of God, that's what we bring, our weakness and our sin, and that's, those are the things that we bring to this discussion of God's grace that saves from beginning to end. I think it's sometimes important to ask this question when we set about studying a topic like this, why? Why should we study man's unconverted condition? Well, I know I sin. I know I've got weaknesses. Don't, 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 Don't dwell on that. But why should we study this? We bring one factor when it comes to the doctrine of grace, grace that saves. The factor has been called many things. Many of those descriptives are in the list we began with. But why should we study this truth about the human race, a truth 
initiated in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Why? My hope is that by the Holy Spirit this morning, we will gain a better understanding of who we are and who we were, hopefully for everybody here, before the application of God's sovereign grace and salvation. Because that understanding, a proper understanding of that truth, will elevate God and his glory to heights we have not previously experienced. Let's pray a minute. Father, if your Holy Spirit doesn't teach us this morning, we will not learn. So, Lord, I ask that you would... uh, sovereignly rule over our ears and our minds so that we might hear the truths. Lord, uh, use this faltering tongue and halting tongue to say something that you will then interpret to, to the hearer to open eyes to see who we really were before you picked us out of the miry clay and who our friends and neighbors and relatives are who have not been touched by your Holy Spirit, who they are, so that we might value what you've done for us and exalt you more, and so that we might have a greater sense of urgency about sharing the means of grace with those who are dying. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We study original sin, or more accurately, inherited sin, Because that describes, inherited sin is probably the more accurate term, because that describes the situation unbelievers are in before God intervenes by his grace. And because we must understand, someone prayed in the prayer time this morning, the gravity of that condition. We really need to understand the gravity of that condition and admit the desperate nature of that condition if we're going to begin to see how amazing the grace that saves really is. Some of you, not me, but some of you out there lived exemplary lives before Christ arrested you. I'm I'm convinced of that. I know some that I will point out. I won't, but you know who they are. They were just exemplary people to the observer before Christ. But if you you have never, and I, I hesitate to say this, but I feel constrained to do it. If you never saw your lost, helpless, sinful condition, if you never have seen that, I ask, what do you think you were saved from? Don't be offended, but if you've never realized your desperate need for God's grace that saves, I must say you should examine whether you're in Christ or not. For others who you know, family and friends without Christ, if we don't realize the desperate need they have, we will not be properly motivated to share the gospel with them. So let's define terms. Whatever descriptive you use for this first point, it refers to the effect of inherited sin and corruption on the whole person. Corruption that pervades and invades every aspect of our being, the body, the soul, the mind, the spirit, and the will, and this sin was inherited from Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22, and I'm just 
pulling out some words so that it'll get the truth across that we're about this morning. So there are some ellipses in this quote, but this is from Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15. For by a man came death, and for as in Adam all die. All. This is an inconvenient truth for those who have the contrary opinion that our condition is not at all, not all that bad. People are basically good. That's a lie. And the result of that death is that the total or the whole person is corrupted by the sin that brought that death. R.C. Sproul put it this way. No vestigial island of righteousness escapes the influence of the fall. Sin reaches into every aspect of our lives, finding no shelter or isolated virtue. Sin penetrates to the root or core of our being. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. What does this condition consist of? And with that background and that definition, let's examine what Scripture says about our condition before God intervened by his amazing grace. And here's the main question for this morning that we'll answer at the end. It's a rhetorical question, but maybe the answer is not all that plain to you now, or you may doubt it. Hopefully by the end of the class you won't. Are human beings so sinful that God must create and decisively fulfill every human inclination to believe and obey? There's a lot lot in there, so let me repeat it. Are human beings so sinful that God must, God must create and decisively fulfill? God must create and decisively fulfill every human inclination to believe and obey. There's a five-fold, what uh, John Piper preached a sermon in, together for the gospel, and Evan suggested I listen to it. I didn't get to go this year. I've been to before, but I didn't get to go this year. <clears throat> in which he dealt with the bondage of the will. And he described a five-fold bondage, and I'm going to use that. I'm stealing that outline for our discussion this morning. I'm not going to, sometimes I'd be better off just reading his sermon, but I'll try to put some of it in my own words. First, there's a five-fold bondage. We are slaves, essentially. Bondage means we're enslaved. And the first part of that bondage is we are slaves to guilt, justly deserving God's condemnation. And I'm going to have proof text for each of these points, so I want you to, the scripture is the most important thing. Romans Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 and verse 19. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That, and I underlined, I believe in your notes, under sin. That's a death. We're, we're covered with sin. It's weighing us down. It's holding us from coming up. It is, it's like we're in a grave. That's a very apt description. And we are under a weight of sin that we cannot lift lift off ourselves. Under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. Not one. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Here's the sobering truth, or at least it should be sobering to us. As children of wrath, God's just wrath, we are under divine condemnation. Without God's intervention, everyone here was under condemnation. God's condemnation. God's just condemnation. Under sin, none is righteous. No, not one. Every mouth may be stopped. The whole world made accountable to God. The effect of the fall was death. And we inherited that death. And then the word of God was revealed to mankind as the law of God. And according to the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul, we were all objectively guilty of breaking God's law. And the result is accountability for us. All are and were accountable with a sentence of divine condemnation. Without Christ... We're still in a prison, locked in as slaves to sin, on death row, bearing the sentence of death. The guilty verdict imposed against us is unimpeachable and unappealable. We will surely perish, and there's no way out. We have mocked God, God chosen and preferred other things to God. These are acts of treason, and this applies to everyone. Now, I'm convinced that I, and I'll conclude you in this, we don't even begin to know the depth, height, and breadth of our own sin and the slavery it results in. The psalmist asks the rhetorical question in Psalm 1912, and this is the ESV, who can discern his errors? And if you read it in context, I won't read the whole passage, but if you read it in context, the answer is no one. It's, it's crying out, who, I, I can't even, the psalmist was saying, I, I can't begin to understand my errors. The answer is no one. Pastor Spurgeon, preaching in a sermon using that text in a message, sin immeasurable, put it this way. And before I go on and read from the quote, you have the quote. I, the last minute I asked uh, Pete to make some copies of this sermon. Because... I probably could serve you no better than to simply read the whole sermon to you this morning. But it's back there on the table. I I think, I don't know how many copies were made. Hopefully you were able to get one. I encourage you to read it. I, I came away from it with tears. Don't read it now. Read it later. But I'll read a little bit of it to you. Spurgeon put it this way, we all acknowledge that we have errors. Surely we are not so proud as to imagine ourselves to be perfect. If we pretend to perfection, we are utterly ignorant, for every profession of human perfection arises from perfect ignorance. Any notion that we are free from sin should at once discover to us that we abound in it. To vindicate my boast of perfection, I must deny the word of God, forget the law, and exalt myself above the testimony of truth. Therefore, I say, we are willing to confess that we have many errors, yet who amongst us can understand them? The ESV says, discern them. Who can discern 
fully understand his errors. The shades of evil are perceptible to God, but not always perceptible to us. Our eye has been so blinded and its vision so ruined by the fall, the absolute black of sin we can detect, but the shades of its darkness we are unable to discern. And yet the slightest shadow of sin is perceptible to God, and that very shade divides us from the perfect one and causes us to be guilty of sin punishable by death, I'm adding. The fact is that man is a reeking mass of corruption. His whole soul is by nature so debased and so depraved that no description which can be given of him, even by inspired tongues, can fully tell how base and vile a thing he is. Perhaps the best way for us to comprehend, and this isn't from Spurgeon, I, I, well, I might have Actually, you, when you read the message, you might see some hints of this. But I started thinking about it. I started thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. You read it recently? Matthew chapter 5 through into chapter 7. Chapters 5, 6, and 7. I think we blithely pass over that sermon sometimes. This is Jesus Christ preaching... And in the sermon, he is explaining just a little part of what it would mean to be a perfect law keeper. You remember those, how can you do that? Somebody hits you and you turn your other cheek. You remember all of the, and there's many more things that are challenging. We just kind of skip over them, I think. My tendency is to kind of skip, well, 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 he must, he's just speaking in a hyperbolic manner. No, he's not. He's describing what a perfect law keeper does. And I'll guarantee you there's not a person here proud enough to try to say you have kept his explanation of the law and he's in the Sermon on the Mount and he's just scratching the surface. He's not covering the whole thing. So that that would be one thing for you to consider. The other is, and this is described, and I'm going to read the description of it from Spurgeon's sermon that you have a copy of, hopefully. That is, consider Jesus agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood over the contemplation of the imposition of the wrath of God that he was facing. He was about to experience that, and Spurgeon explained it this way. He first quoted from George Herbert, and then he went on to elaborate. He that would know sin, let him repair to Olivet, And he shall see a man so wrung with pain that all his head, his hair, his garments bloody be. Sin was that press and vice which forced pain to hunt its cruel food through every vein. That's uh, George Herbert. And Spurgeon continues, you must, must see Christ sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. You must have a vision of him with the spittle running down his cheeks, with his back torn by the accursed whip. You must see him going on his dolorous journey through Jerusalem. You must behold him fainting under the weight of the cross. You must see him as the nails are driven through his hands and through his feet. Your tearful eye must watch the throes of the grim agonies of death. You must drink of the bitterness of wormwood mingled with the gall. You must stand in the thick darkness with your own soul exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. You must cry yourself that awful earth-startling cry of Lama Sabachthani. You too must, as he did, feel all that ways of God's almighty wrath. 
You must be ground between the upper and nether millstones of wrath and vengeance. You must drink of the cup to its last dregs and like Jesus cry, it is finished or else you can never know all your errors and understand the guilt of your sin. Without God's intervention, we are all slaves to sin's guilt and we are in bondage to the divine and righteous condemnation of God because of sin. The second bondage we have is we are slaves to the love of self. People love darkness. John 3, 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That passage is so full, I won't try to fully unpack it. But the inerrant word of God tells us that people hate light and love darkness. When we evaluate our past selves before God saved us, we have to confirm that truth. Don't expect the unbeliever to believe that about himself at all. That person might think that they love the light, but for purposes of salvation, they don't love the light. Or God's a liar, and he's not. People cannot embrace as bright and beautiful what they hate. People cannot repudiate as darkness what they love. People all make decisions based on their controlling preferences, and we all come into the world hating and loving the wrong things. In, a, in the message I mentioned earlier this year at T4G, John Piper put it this way, darkness tastes good to the natural palate. Light tastes putrid to the natural palate. The darkness does not consist of things we are forced to do against our will. They are our will. Why does the darkness taste good? In John chapter 5, verses 43 and 44, I think I've got the right chapter. I hope that's right. Somewhere. You might have to check my... If It might be chapter 6, but I think I've got it right in the notes. Jesus provides us the answer in part to this, of his, uh, in part of his response to those religious people who were trying to kill him. That's the passage we're talking about. It's a fairly long passage. <clears throat> and Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another... And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. It feels good to be loved by people, right? And it feels good to be loved by other people. And actually, there's nothing terribly wrong with that unless it's a craving. What is there about darkness that people love so much? Jesus answers that question for them and for us in the form of another question. He says here in the passage, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory of God? 
This isn't about encouraging one another. Of course we should encourage one another. But if we crave that encouragement more than we crave the glory of God, that's bad evidence against us. It tastes good to be praised by the people. And here comes Jesus asking people to follow him to the cross. That sounds foolish. In fact, I think it's at the end of this passage where some of the disciples went away. People are in bondage to the love of self. The craving, craving for approval of others is darkness. And it is a bondage that makes us slaves. The third bondage is we are slaves to a hatred of God's supremacy. Romans 8, 7 teaches us this. For the mind that is set on the flesh, and I, I, I really was fascinated by this in something I read. I don't even remember where I got but the, this is talking about the mindset of the flesh. It's a word that we, so I put that in brackets. That's not in scripture, but that's my interpretation. The mind that is set on the flesh. In other words, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. I hope you get the strength of that word, cannot. Romans, that it's Romans 8, 7 is in that passage. Romans 8, 6 through 8. And it tells us about two kinds of people. And it tells us there are essentially, there are only two kinds of people. First, there are all those who do not have the Spirit of God. These are all hostile to God. They are natural. They are in the flesh. And second, there are those people who are not hostile to God because of the indwelling Spirit of God. When the Scripture here describes the hostile ones, it describes them as the mind that is set on the flesh. They have a certain mindset, hostile to God, hating God. Why? They do not love submission to God. In fact, they cannot submit to God. But those who have been chosen by God are addressed in Romans 8 and 9. You, however, are not in the power of the flesh, not in the flesh's mindset, but under the sway of the Spirit. The mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostility, hatred toward God. In the message I referred to, John Piper said, he, he put it this way, he said, and he said this over and over again, this is a weighty cannot. We would like to think it's not really that bad, it's not impossible, but that's what it's saying, cannot. In fact, I, he kept repeating it in the message so often, I, I don't know, I came up with a crazy thing. It's like I came up with cannot spelled K-N-O-T, not. Like it was a, a knot that couldn't be uh, untied. You ever had one of those in your shoelace? You can't untie it. I mean, it's just, it's, that's the kind of cannot we have here. And it binds us. It binds us. It puts us in bondage. We become slaves. We cannot submit to God without God's intervention. This cannot is a bondage that causes an absolute inability to willingly allow God to be supreme. 
even though it's insanity to be hostile to God, and we all kind of would admit, boy, that's insanity. If we really believe God is God, is God really God? (laughs) If we really believe God is God, it's insanity to be hostile to God, yet we are. Scripture tells us we are. Natural man is hostile to God because he doesn't submit to God's law because he hates to submit. This is the attitude that I'm my own person. I'm not going to go down before anyone. You can say it many different ways. You've heard it said many different ways. Even the sweetest unbeliever we may know, the sweetest old grandmother, in whom God has not intervened by the Spirit, is hostile to God and hostile to God's law. You remember the first commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. But people without God's intervention cannot. They are slaves to a hatred for God's supremacy. Therefore, they hate God. If you ask most unbelievers if they hate God, they would probably deny it completely. Oh, no, I don't hate God. But Scripture makes the truth clear. We are hostile to God. We hated God. And as such, we were enemies of God until His Spirit intervened. One of my favorite passages, because it just strikes me, is Romans 5. I believe it's about verse 6 through about verse 10 or 11. Verse 10 tells us we are enemies. We were enemies when he loved us. We were enemies. R.C. Sproul, uh, he, can say, he first confessed something about his own. He was describing his own personal experience. And then he reflected on Martin Luther's similar confession. And this quote, I think, is in your notes. He, cert- he says, Sproul says, I certainly was not inclined to seek my joy in God. Well, let me back up and tell you what this was, the context here. He was reading the West, one of the Westminster's shorter catechism that some of you may be familiar with. What is, the, what is the main purpose of man? It is to love God and enjoy him forever. And he was contemplating, he, that bothered him. This is before he was saved. But he was studying the word and he was into the word, but he, that bothered him. I don't have any joy. It's similar to Luther, similar to Augustine, actually didn't have any joy. No joy was there. And then he, it was in that context that he wrote the, he was describing here. I certainly was not inclined to seek my joy in God. I later understood my feelings when reading Luther's response to the question before his conversion. Do you love God? Luther replied, love God? Sometimes I hate him. This is a rare admission among men. Even Luther's candid reply was less than totally honest. Had he spoken the full truth, he would have said he hated God all the time. Slaves in bondage because of an unwilling to submit. That's man's condition without God. Unless God intervenes by his spirit, that's who we are. And we're slaves to spiritual death. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead. Speaking to believers. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There are, and we were, people who were walking dead. I'm told those are zombies. I don't follow the zombie culture at all. But obviously, in the chapter coinciding with what we're studying today in the book Proof, which is chapter 3, entitled Resurrecting Grace, the authors cleverly use the concept of zombies to illustrate the truth. I'll let you read their analysis. Comparing our condition to that of zombies without trying to quote it all here. But I do want to whet your appetite for reading the book with this quote that summarizes the truth about what God's word has to say about our dead condition. They wrote, if we're honest, most of us would like to think that our rescue from God's wrath started with something we did. Surely there was some minuscule outpost of goodness deep inside us where God's kingdom first gained a foothold in our lives. Perhaps a righteous deed, a willingness to believe, or a flicker of faith that only God could foresee. And they go on to say this, when God rescued us, we weren't choking on the waves or waiting our turn at a heavenly polling station. We were deceased in a dung heap of transgressions and sins, Ephesians 2.1. And just as the physically dead cannot communicate with the living, so also those who are spiritually dead cannot communicate with the eternal living God. There are no voting machines in caskets, and corpses have never responded well when asked to grab life preservers. There's a very apt statement on the next page of the book. Peter would love this quote. He's probably already seen it and underlined it. Death in our roots led to death in our fruits. My translation is our daily failures to perfectly follow God's laws, sins. That's our fruits. Yesterday, as I was, not yesterday, yesterday when I was writing these notes, Friday when I was sitting at the funeral service of a dear friend to Frank and Annette and many others who filled three sections of the building, something that was said, and I don't remember exactly what was said, but it just struck me, and I wrote these words. I sent myself an email. Everybody do that now to keep track of your thoughts. I, I had the ringer off. It wasn't going to disturb the funeral service, but I sent myself, I wrote this, and I sent myself this email. If you believe the lie, you will remain dead. The message we bring to people who are already in the process of perishing physically and who are already dead spiritually is that life is in the truth of the gospel. If we believe the religious lie peddled by the world system, a religion of works, peddled by our culture, peddled by our man-centered educational systems, and ultimately peddled by Satan, we will remain dead. No matter how good we look on the outside, we can be flush with the world's success on the outside, all kinds of degrees behind our name and a lot of money in our bank account. But if we believe that lie, no matter what it looks like on the outside, we will remain dead. There's hardly a, more bond, a stronger situation of bondage than dead.
just about to fall off here. I'm moving around too much. The truth, this is not working. I'm got it. You might come help me hook it on my ear. I can't seem to get it hooked. Oh well, and maybe that'll work. Okay. The truth is that our, mor our moral inability, our radical corruption, our nature that is wholly defiled keeps us from being really alive to God. In Matthew 8.22 and Luke 9.60. That pass those two passages, they're parallel. <laughs> Always puzzled me. You remember the, they came to Je Jesus was saying, follow me. And one came to him, and I just used one of them because there were several responses. One of them said, I need to go bury my father. Remember that? And Jesus' response was, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's a harsh thing to say. Jesus was saying a couple of things when he said that, and two different gospel writers recorded it. First, he was saying that the call to follow him rises above all other allegiances. All other allegiances. You've got something more important to do than to follow God this morning or tomorrow or whenever it is this week that you're called to follow him. You've got something more important to do. I hope you catch the edge on what Jesus had to say there. The call to follow him rises above all other allegiances. And second, I, oh, I'm tempted. I won't go there. Something popped into my mind about what some of you have heard me call the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the way we celebrate birthdays in this city. It just drives me crazy. Anyway. <laughs> That's more important than anything. We take a week off, and we go well, all kind of stuff to celebrate a birthday. I never understood that. I know some of y'all just understand that, and I'm not condemning you. Please understand, I'm not condemning you. But I, um, anyway, the second thing Jesus was saying here was that those who were not his followers were dead. Dead. And similarly, the father in the parable that we call the parable of the prodigal son went out and asked the older brother who was envious. He was standing outside and he was envious. He said, please come in because your brother who was dead is alive. Jesus was teaching us by this parable that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Let the universality of our slavery to spiritual death inherited from Adam sink in. People have inherited the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Everyone is dead apart from the life-giving grace of God. All were following Satan. All people are the children of God's deserved wrath, slaves in bondage to death unless God graciously intervenes. The, other bond, the next bondage that we suffer from Scripture clearly taught, slaves who are blind to the glory of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 10. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory 
None of the rulers of this age understand, understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us, writing to the Corinthians, through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. This passage and many others tell us there is a bondage, a slavery that results from spiritual blindness, a blindness that is only cured by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit of God. God's secret and hidden wisdom is not seen, heard, or even imagined by the heart of man. If, I've always, this passage has always been, in my mind, one used, and it's been used often. And I don't say this is incorrect. Boy, Jesus, the splendors that we're going to be, we're going to be a privy to when we see our Savior's face. It is going to be fab. You can't even imagine how good it was. That's the way it's taught. And that's true. There's, that's, that's certainly true. That's not what this passage is talking about. What God is saying here is that God's secret and hidden wisdom is not seen, heard, or even imagined by the heart of man if God's Spirit does not provide that sight, that hearing, or that ability to imagine. Why can't they see? The answer is in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There's a double blindness going on here. I'm doing better than I did last week, but not too well. <laughs> Seems like some of this up. There we go. I can't get this thing hooked well. There, there's a double blindness going on here. Let me explain. First, the natural person has the mindset of the flesh, and that mindset is not able. It cannot accept what cannot be seen with that mindset. This is God informing us that there's a natural human inability to see or discern, understand, accept as wisdom what we see as foolish. The natural person description here, just like it was in Romans 8, is a devastating description. Natural, normal, human. Then you cannot see the glory of God's revelation of himself and his plan of salvation. That person cannot accept as wise what he or she sees as foolish. And second, the double blindness, the second part of it is there is satanic blindness. A second reason for blindness, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us that Satan has blinded the natural man. Why didn't the natural man see glory in Christ Jesus? Quote, in their case, the God of this world... Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Double blindness. We are slaves because of blindness. We are in bondage because of blindness. How many different ways can God tell us that we are completely incapable of ever coming to God on our own without his Holy Spirit? Humanity without God's gracious intervention is condemned as guilty, Lovers of self, haters of God, dead in trespasses and sins, and completely blind to the truth. The glory of God's sovereign, omnipotent grace is the only remedy for this fivefold enslaving bondage. It is so designed as to answer every one of these five ways in which we're enslaved. The beginning of verse 2 of a wonderful sovereign grace song, O Great God, says it profoundly and well. I sang this on Friday and 
it just resonated with me. Listen to the words. I won't sing them. I don't have any accompaniment, but I will. Hopefully the melody will run through your mind. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. I'm going to quickly fly through what this condition does not consist of. There are some possible misconceptions about this depraved condition. Spend just a couple of minutes discussing some of the common misunderstandings. And, you know, this, you're, some of you will say, this just doesn't resonate with my experience. I just see people who aren't believers doing some wonderfully good things. Right? This truth of God is not saying that people are as bad as they possibly could be. It's not, people are not as wicked as it could possibly be. Um, we need to convey that because of common grace and because of civil virtue, people's actions are seen as good and beneficial even if they've never been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Jeffrey Dahmer may have loved his mother and provided for her. Man's true condition is that nothing he does can commend him to a perfect holy God. The rich young ruler pointed out all the ways he had kept the commandments. And his only apparent, and notice I said apparent, his only apparent failure was his unwillingness to leave all and follow Jesus. Remember that? But the scripture we have read this morning says that in our corrupt humanity, we never do a single good thing. The reformers, Sproul quote explains this better than I can. The reformers wrestled with this problem and acknowledged that sinners in their fallen condition are still capable of performing what the reformers call works of civil virtue. Civil virtue refers to deeds that conform outwardly to the law of God. Fallen sinners can refrain from stealing and perform acts of charity, but these deeds are not deemed good in God's economy. When God evaluates the actions of people, he considers not only the outward deeds in and of themselves, but also the motives behind those acts. The supreme motive required of everything we do is the love of God. What does the word teach? Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Romans 8:23. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And then if there was any question about the matter, Jesus taught in, in Matthew 5, 48, in the Sermon on the Mount, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That nails the coffin shut as to any comparative goodness that would satisfy God's demands, God's righteous demands. This expresses once again when we really respond. That's impossible. True. But God is really God. Nothing is impossible with God. God's reason for bringing eternal life to those he calls his adopted children is to provide heaven and earth with an increasingly clearer picture, an image of himself, his people, the church, are designed to illustrate the unity of the Godhead. Husbands and wives are to illustrate the relationship between Christ and his purchased bride, and man is to be about God's glory. Peter said it well. 
You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The second misconception is, well, what about choices? Oh, man, we have choices. Yes, we do. Some people object based on distorted notions of free will that the doctrine of total depravity, radical depravity, radical corruption, whatever your favorite descriptive is, deprives people of the right to make choices and thus violates their concept of free will. Now, of course, you have to define terms, and I won't go there this morning. But there is no sense in which the biblical doctrine, this biblical doctrine we're studying this morning, destroys or eradicates the human will. Spruill puts it this way, we still have a mind and a will. The problem is not that we cannot make choices. Natural men make choices all the time. The problem is that in our fallen condition, we make sinful choices. We make these choices freely. We sin precisely because we want to sin, and we are capable of choosing exactly what we want to choose. I won't read you Reichen and Boyce's illustration of the lion who is, uh, before whom is put a bale of hay. It's not natural for that lion to want to eat that. He doesn't want that food. It's not the food he, it's not in his nature to eat a bale of hay. It's a great illustration that quotes in your notes. Civil virtue of those who are unbelievers, those good things that we observe outwardly, they don't come from faith. To come from faith and to be motivated by a love for God requires a changed nature. A change that people cannot self-start or even continue once started. God must intervene to change the nature of man. I could go on. Time is long over. I, I think I must conclude by revisiting the question I started with. And then a brief statement that brings God back into the picture. Uh, some of us listening to this about man, and if you read that sermon, you'll even be more convinced, could get a little down when we really consider who we were without God and who our friends and family and neighbors and work co-workers are without God. The question we started with, are human beings so sinful that God must create and decisively fulfill every human inclination to believe and obey? The obvious answer from Scripture is absolutely yes. Once we get that doctrine right, relentless logic will compel us to agree with the remaining four points that we're going to be studying in the next few weeks. Grace that saves from beginning to end. Let me conclude with a couple of things. First, the continuation of a passage of Scripture from Ephesians 2 that we've used today, and then a quote from Proof. Man brings ugly, corrupt, pervasive, putrefied, and putrefying sin to the table. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. Paul just breaks into his own discourse and says, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, even faith, that's my brackets, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
And then this quote, whenever God turns dead sinners into living servants, newly reborn rebels freely lay down their weapons at the feet of King Jesus. This new life isn't an achievement that anyone deserved or even desired before God opened their hearts. Our rescue from God's wrath is a work of grace from first to last. It is an unsought and undeserved gift lavished on unresponsive souls who had already enlisted in rebellion against God's reign before they soiled their first diaper. The only right response to such grace is simply to say thank you and to share the news of grace with everyone we meet. Father, please, by your spirit, convince us of this truth because we are so inclined to be proud. Humble us, Lord, with the truth of who we were before you intervened so that we don't take any pride in what you've done So we take no pride in the mercy you have lavished on us richly if we are in Christ. May we not ever think it was anything in us that commended us to you. It was not. It was all yours. Your grace from first to last. Thank you for this cross in Jesus' name. Amen.